0: With the global pandemic at the forefront of everyone's mind, government response is getting a lot of attention. In China, Zach Dykwald says the initial public reaction to the party line was skeptical.
1: You know, the government was between three and four weeks late on actually acknowledging the threat of the coronavirus. It aggravated the country in a way that I have not seen before in the last
0: decade. Coming up, the head of the Young China Group updates us on the expectations of the millennial generation in China. For centuries, the jewel-box town of Eger in northern Hungary has attracted invaders from Ottomans to Soviets. Today, it's a weekend tourist getaway known for historic architecture, thermal spas, and a fruit brandy Hungarians carry with them wherever they travel.
2: Hungarians would never leave the country without a little flat flask of palinka. We also call it medicine.
0: Guides from Hungary take us to Eger, and we update our notes on China in the hour ahead. It's Travel with Rick Steves. Rick Steves here. I love travel. In fact, my life's work has been to help people like you feel empowered to explore the world. As the coronavirus puts countless trips on hold, I think it's more important than ever that we keep on learning about the world. Let's use the hour ahead on Travel with Rick Steves to inspire us for our next great adventures. Adventures we'll enjoy when we're able to travel again. How has the COVID-19 epidemic affected your world? At its origin in China, megacities were turned into isolation chambers for millions of residents. The government's lack of response to early warnings and the aspirations of a younger generation are factors that its rulers are now having to address. Sino-American expert Zach Dykwald is back to update us on what he's been observing and hearing from his sources in China. Let's start out today's Travel with Rick Steves with a little old-world charm in Hungary. When traveling in Europe, you just have to include its great cities on your itinerary. Hungary's elegant capital of Budapest is certainly impressive. But there's another side that you should explore as well, and that's the country's smaller towns and cities. Historic Eger is an easy and popular side trip northeast of Budapest. It's been attracting travelers from Eastern Europe as a place to catch your breath surrounded by the opulent architecture of Hungary. To introduce us to the scene in Eger, we're joined by Hungarian tour guides Monica Posch and George Varkas. Thank you. Thank you. Did I get that right in Budapest? If you're uh, looking for a little break, you head out to Eger?
3: Very much so, yes. It's, How far uh, away is it, and why uh, do you go there? Driving, it would take you about maybe an hour and 10 minutes, um, down on a highway, and then on a the secondary road, and then you find yourself in Eger. And, is there uh, a train connection? There is, yes. Mm -hmm. Uh, You will have to switch. Uh, That's one of the reasons why Agar is not as cosmopolitan as it should be, because when uh, train tracks were planned, uh, they didn't make a direct connection initially. So um, that's a little bit of of a downside of it, but there's a great bus connection as well.
0: So, Monica, when you were growing up in Budapest, did your family ever go to Eger together?
2: Yes, actually, uh, not just with our family, but I remember that uh, during school trips, Mm -hmm. uh, during the communist era, we were taken to Eger. Eger uh, was uh, the seat of the archbishopry, so it has fantastic, beautiful uh, churches. By the way, I would like to tell you that during the communist era, because of the 1956 revolution after, in Hungary, all of the churches were considered to be museums, so they were all so well-kept that uh, even during the communist era, as schoolchildren, we were taken to, uh, to see the churches, churches. Exactly. as museums, but not exactly. as living places of exactly. worship. Exactly.
0: The church survived physically, but it's a historic place, a museum, rather than a place of worship
2: during the communist during era. During communist time. That's right. Okay. Well, it
0: was
3: very much controlled. controlled but why, yeah. let's just turn around a little bit and, and say why Eger would be the number one destination for Hungarians to visit, because it's part of the curriculum because that's where our biggest victory happened. Ah, uh, during and this is going back Turkish to the Turkish The Turkish time because 15, the Turks we Europe. we talk about. Yeah. And uh, that was the last place to be taken in by the Turks. So off they go all the way. 39,000 uh, Turks are coming over and uh, 2,000 Agarians actually lock themselves up in the castle. Women, children, Adelie, and uh, they go and defeat the Turks. So that's the victory we talk about. That's why all children are taken and uh, they are taught we don't talk about the fact that they sent away uh, the defeated Turks uh, a couple of months later, turned around and came back and took the town. But that's not something we talk about, obviously. No. That's that's not really uh, something one should what be proud of. What year was this of,
0: big battle? 1552. So nearly 500 years ago. Well, the castle and, is
2: still there. And, and, so and, is the, and, and you can visit the castle. The
0: castle. You get Even as a tourist, you get a sense, this is really important to the Hungarian Very people. So. Very much so. Very much And my memory of Eger is... A minaret, and it must be the most northern minaret from the Ottoman Empire sticking up right there in the middle of this city. Yeah.
3: It's like a spaceship there. <laughs> sticking yeah. out in, uh, no, it has no contact. It's just sitting there. It's under um, going a, a major restoration. It's uh, rather interesting. Uh, just recently, they uh, reinstated the call for prayer. A month later, they put it under a huge uh, reconstruction. Was
0: it built for the, the man who sings the call to prayer? Calling Pert? for prayer. The He, he would, so, the exactly. he would yes. Yes. actually climb up this barrow. Yes. yes. It's what, about 200 steps all the way to the top. Right. And then he would get that acoustical benefit of being Mm -hmm. on top of everybody. And to this day, while uh, the, the Muzin might not climb up there five times a day, tourists can climb up there. Yes. It's a tight little climb. Yes. But it's a good view from there.
2: And also the reason it's important to mention because although Hungary was uh, under the Turkish-Ottoman invasion in the 15th century. They majorly converted existing buildings into minarets, or they converted the Roman Catholic Church into mosques. They didn't build too many things. They built oh, okay. these minarets that we have, I think, maybe two or max three in our whole country. So the minaret would
0: just decorate a pre-existing building that became a mosque, is that what you're saying? Or nearby. Or nearby. Nearby. So yeah. it's
2: very rare to see anything from the 15th century Turkish. Ottoman era, but that minaret is one of a kind. That's one of
0: it. Hungarian tour guides George Farkas and Monica Posch are telling us why the town of Eger in northern Hungary is one of their country's most popular getaways right now on Travel with Rick Steves. Something I remember from Eger is the market. It's just a wonderful market. George, can you take us on a little walk? If you have a, some American friends with you and you want to introduce the culture, what would you find in the market at Eger that gives us an insight into the salt of the earth Hungarian cuisine and culture? Um,
3: it's a great experience, actually. It's a, a living market, and um, you still see the ones that actually just went out in the morning. And um they went to see what's there to sell and they come on to their tiny little stalls and then they sell their individual small quantity backyard. I remember that. It's like a little
0: card table and there's a hard scrabble old farmer husband and wife and they've got their turnips and their potatoes and they kind of look like their produce.
3: Very much so, yeah. So you can get that type of thing and then and then you continue on and then you start to see the beautifully presented larger stalls with grapes and peaches and plums and veggies and all that beautifully presented and the key is uh, to have that relationship with the vendor so you go and blink and then they know that they know you so you get the nice stuff uh, from uh, the front uh, I mean you know the really presentable one and uh, if you're not regular here you have to be aware you might not get what you say you know are you, are you <laughs>
0: likely to find some of this famous Hungarian moonshine for sale
3: very much so. Palenka. That's Tell the, us about
0: Palenka because that's a um, fundamental part of Hungarian is culture.
3: something, um, it's like wrapper, it's very legal. Um, I would say it starts from um, 80 proof upwards, and um, it's a shot. Um, that's how in the old days. Um, Those that work out in the field start their day with just to get some energy. Because Uh, my my
0: hunch is there's these flat little flasks that people have. Yes, yes, definitely. Um, I
2: I do have one with me at that moment. Uh, Hungarians would never leave the country without a little flat flask of palinka. We also call it medicine. If you have a heartache, if you have a a little bit of a stomach problem because you are abroad, no, you are not taking baptobismo or something else, but you immediately get the little Hungarian palinka. It's like a sanitizer. It's a sanitizer. I mean, (laughs) Ah. it's really strong. Believe it or not, but there are still distillation centers in the country when you have some fruit trees uh, in Hungary, let's say plum, or uh, apricot or, or whatever you can take your own fruit to these distillation centers you know oh. it's bio and then uh, not filled with chemicals and then they make it for so you this
3: is bio moonshine exactly there's actually um, a reconsidered approach today because uh, in the old days when you went to a house of a hungarian or you started a dinner um, at a venue they will offer you palinka And now, modern culinary understanding is uh, that if you offered a palinka before the meal, you should be assured that the meal is not going to be good because what they say that if you have your palinka sort of so strong it kills all your it taste buds, deadens bumps. your ability to taste and, it and then you don't taste the food so now palinka should actually be a digestive, digestive. as supposed to okay. be an aperitif
0: so uh, if you are a host and you respect what you've cooked you want people to appreciate yes. it you're not going to hide it by giving or them if this.
3: you know what you cooked then you offered palinka right. before <laughs> this is Travel with Rick
0: Steves <laughs> we're talking about uh, an insight into uh, Hungarian culture and the town of Eger which is the number one side trip from Budapest we're talking with our uh, Hungarian guide friends, George Farkas and Monika Posh. And, George and Monica, I believe people go to Eger not necessarily for the palenka or not even for the minaret, but for the spa scene and for the wine. Can you talk just very briefly about the spa situation in Eger and the wine?
2: All right. Well, since we talked about the Turkish-Ottoman invasion... I need to mention that uh, one of the most famous, if not the most famous uh, red wine we have in Hungary is the bull's blood. Bull's blood. Yes, the bull's blood, which even survived so beautifully the communist era. The interesting story of how the name of the wine comes, uh, there was a rumor that uh, in the 15th century, the Turkish Ottoman soldiers saw how the Hungarian soldiers were drinking that uh, heavy busted red wine uh, dripping from their moustache, and since the Hungarians uh, fight it so heroically, you're they thought they the were drinking bull's blood. Yes, they thought that there must be some magic, and what else could it be that some booze blood was mixed with uh, the Hungarian red wine. Uh, there was actually also another version of how the the name came from, the delicious uh, red wine was just uh, irresistible from the Turkish Ottoman Muslim soldiers. Of course, they were not allowed to drink, so when their supervisor came seeing the uh, Muslim Ottomans uh, drinking the wine as, OK, what are you guys drinking? And then so they said, well, uh, bull's blood. So that's the two different versions. To hide versions. the fact that they to weren't hide. supposed to
0: drink the exactly. alcohol. Exactly. And it would make them stronger because, oh, yes. you know, uh, tribal groups of Yeah, but that was illegal. They yeah. were not
2: supposed to do that. So this is how the name came So, so. that's
0: the wine, the famous heavy red bull's blood nicknamed yes. wine. And George, people like the spas. They say in Hungary, I mean, there's thermal springs everywhere. If you drive a stick into the ground, you'll hit hot water. What, what is the spa scene in the Right, my egg or- uh,
3: We always say that uh, once you drill down, you find hot water, but at the same time, we always say we wish at least we once found oil. Uh, yeah, <laughs> <nice. That'd laughs> but we're nice. very rich in, in thermal water, uh, which is part of our national healthcare system. Mm. Uh, it's um, reportedly uh, curing. Uh, we have people actually prescribed to go to these spas. So that's one colour to it but the other one is uh, pleasure so uh, people will actually travel down from all over not just from the capital but down Mm -hmm. to Agar Agar Salok which is uh, just nearby maybe a 10, 15 minutes drive. Eger Solok. Uh, is that, guess, is that Solok. The,
0: like Salt Hill? Or, or the, yes, yes. Salt Hill's uh, uh, the exactly. So yeah.
3: there is actually a small site where water is coming out and uh, today is ever so celebrated that uh, one travels there today will find a very modern spa complex okay, uh, so built on so lots
0: top. to do, lots yes, to see yeah. and experience when yes. we go to Hungary and especially when we uh, take a side trip from Budapest to Egger. George Farkas, Monica Pash, Kosanom. Thank you. Next, we get an update on how expectations are changing in China from the head of the Young China Group. We're at 877-333-7425 on Travel with Rick Steves. They used to say, if America sneezes, the rest of the world catches a cold. Today, you could say the same for China. But given the economic impact of the coronavirus quarantines as well as the trade war policies between the U.S. and China, I thought we should take a fresh look at China's place on the global stage. Author and consultant Zach Dykwald is back with us on Travel with Rick Steves to update us on what he's hearing from his contacts in China and what he sees for its near-term future. Zach, welcome back. Thanks so much for having me, Rick. Tell us how you became an expert on China, just to start things off.
1: Well, I started and still am to a certain extent a student of China. I went there about a decade ago when I was 20 as an exchange student, uh, less interested in studying history and going to Europe like a lot of my friends in school. And I wanted to go see where everyone was saying the future was happening. So I went to China and then ended up moving there full time. Most of the last decade, I've been there living in second and third tier cities really focusing on young people, focusing on the next generation. Much of the China that is not being described in the news and the media is actually happening amongst this young generation in China.
0: It's interesting. So you're a very smart, um, hardworking, highly educated young American, and you've decided Europe is a little bit yesterday and China is tomorrow, and you've got decades ahead of you, and I think it sounds like a, a pretty astute call.
1: To me, Europe is extraordinarily comfortable. When I actually, my first year in China, I would sort of close my eyes and imagine the soft pastels and rolling hills of Europe as a reprieve from the grind of learning Mandarin and and living in sort of difficult situations in smaller town China. And I've recently gotten to go back to Europe and and it has been exactly that. So I don't want to knock Europe, but for me, China really feels like where a lot of the churn and excitement of today's world is taking place.
0: I remember 10 years ago, there were signs in airports that said some company was trying to impress us on how cutting edge it was, and they said in a decade, Chinese will be the dominant language in the internet. And uh, right now, it doesn't seem like that's far-fetched at all.
1: The linguistics of power is actually a really interesting topic. I actually don't think it's likely that Chinese is going to be a a global language. And they actually only about 1.6% of all the written material on the internet is in Mandarin, which is shocking considering that hmm. uh, Chinese netizens make
0: up about a fifth of the world. Wow, so you just gave me, as an English monoglot, a little reprieve. Thank you. Well,
1: you're welcome. It's my pleasure. That's not to say that the spoken Chinese will not be you know, absolutely relevant. People are saying it's actually already becoming the language, not of written science,
0: but certainly in the laboratories around the world. Okay. Well, that's interesting. And uh, now you work with an organization called the Young China Global Group. What is that? So I founded
1: the Young China Group. It's a market insights organization and a think tank. Basically, we are trying to do the research that I was really doing for the book. It's a mixture of culture and cognition, how where you're from affects the way you think. And because this young generation, uh, 417 million millennials, just to put that in scale, that's more people than we have in the United States and Canada combined. So China has a lot of young people. Not only are they the pivot generation culturally within China, They're also the most powerful consumer generation within China and increasingly within the world. So if you are interested in China, you have to be interested in this young generation because they they redefine every market they touch, including in ways that are going to affect the way that average Americans live our lives.
0: But in in your book, I read that more important than where you're from is when you're from.
1: Exactly.
0: So much of the
1: time when we think about China, we think, OK, which city are they from? Northeast, southwest, maybe which dialect do they speak? I argue that a far more informative question, a question that would give you a lot more information, is actually when you are from, which decade you're from. China has changed so fast in such a short period of time that if you are born in 1980 versus 1990, you are born to a completely different China. In fact, many of the biases that we carry as Americans is because a lot of the Chinese-Americans we know came over in the 80s or 90s. If you came over in 1990 from China to the United States, China's per capita GDP was around 300 bucks. Many of them came over as economic refugees. That is not the China that my friends, I was born in 1990, that my friends in China grew up into and are certainly inhabiting now. So the massive pace of change makes when you're from far more important than which, which city you live in or, or where you grew up.
0: This is so important because we have a hard time even fathoming the change. I think you write about how, for instance, since 1990, the GDP in the United States has increased uh, 2.5 times, but in China, 20 times. It's a whole different reality.
1: It's actually 30 times, Rick. So we redid the math with the most (laughs) recent numbers from the World Bank. And just so you can sort of imagine that on a personal level, when people imagine the change of China, they imagine the Shanghai skyline emerging from the dust, which is true. That has happened more or less in the last 30 years. But what they don't imagine is the personal, you know, the psychological impact of witnessing that change, of enjoining that change. A lot of my friends in China or people I interviewed for the book would talk about their uncle being proud to return home when they were kids, when they were, you know, five or six years old in 1996 with a two-wheeled bicycle. And now most of their houses have two-car garages. They talk about watching their village turn into a town, turn into a city in their lifetime. I mean, that level, that speed of change, there's actually no other millennial generation in the world that can rival China's pace of change. So that 30x number.
0: You talk about a city within a city, and uh, these Chinese cities are super modern, and in a way they're throwbacks, but a throwback just goes back to the 70s and 80s, and before that, it doesn't even hardly matter. The evidence of the past is being swamped by skyscrapers, it seems like. So
1: when I imagine the way that China has developed, you end up having the super new, the blisteringly modern, and then the sort of rundown old developing nation that China was so recently, you have those intermingled. So if you imagine the economy like an irrigation system, to a certain extent, there are places that naturally can flourish, right? The places that are close to the water. Traditionally, that's where economies have really taken off. On top of that, you also have Beijing, the central government, which can sort of funnel this economic stimulus, funnel this water throughout the country. And with that, you have places that get directly hit and sprout. You know, when you think of those massive skylines of of cities that many of you have never heard of, Wuhan, Chongqing, Chengdu, they rival some of the biggest cities in the world. On the other side of that, though, there are areas that I sort of think of as historical eddies places where that irrigation, places where that economic water has not necessarily touched or nourished. So on one street in Chengdu, you could have one of the biggest, uh, actually the biggest mall in the world. But then just a couple blocks over, you have a wet market where they're selling Hmm. meat and fish in, in the way that they've been doing it for the last 50 years. And those are side by side. You can't get that in most cities and most countries in the world.
0: This is so interesting, and it's something that, as you mention in your book, Young China, it's hard for us to even fathom it without going there. This is Travel with Rick Steves. We're talking with Zach Teichwald. Zach is talking about how China has some 400 million young adults now in the millennial generation, and they're expecting and demanding more from life than their parents did. That's what Zach writes about in his book, Young China, and what his Young China Group consultancy firm is focusing on. Zach's website is youngchinagroup.com. Now, when I think of uh, young, educated uh, students in a place like China, I wonder how much do they know about the West? My sense from reading your book is that they speak more English and understand the West better than we understand them.
1: We talk a lot about a sort of trade disparity right now between the United States and China. What concerns me more, Rick, is the understanding disparity. So if language is the key to understanding, there are about 300 million people in China learning English, which is actually more people we have learning English than in the United States. Uh, But there's only 1 million people in the United States learning Chinese. So again, if language is at least the first steps to understanding, we're looking at about 300 to 1. But then there's also censorship, right? Much of what we know about China is that they're a censored nation. Um, It used to be, you know, think of the Great Wall, right? It's a nation behind the wall. That's a metaphor that sticks in a lot of people's minds. That used to be far more true than it is today. Yes, China is censored, but this young generation, you know, rather than thinking of censorship as a firm wall, it operates much more like Swiss cheese or even like a game of whack-a-mole. So when there is something that is upsetting uh, to the central party that sort of springs up on the Chinese internet, it gets batted down. And then sure enough, somewhere else on the internet, something else will pop up, it gets batted down. And so rather than being this absolute containment This young generation has actually grown up watching our TV, watching our movies, reading our books, knowing our fashion, singing our songs. You know, I have friends and I talk about this who can quote Martin Luther King Jr. and understand his impact in the United States. And they also can quote How I Met Your Mother because that's informed a lot of their understanding of of dating in the United States.
0: This is Travel with Rick Steves. We're talking with Zach Dykwald. And uh, Zach's book is Young China, How the Restless Generation Will Change Their Country and Their World. Hey, Zach, to get things up to date, the student protests in Hong Kong have been in the news a lot. What is the Chinese government thinking of when they look at that? Are they worried? Should they be worried? So the biggest concern of the Chinese government
1: when they look at the Hong Kong protests are actually not Hong Kong. The biggest concern for Beijing is not, will things continue to bloom and get aggravated within Hong Kong? The biggest question is,
0: will those protests spread to the mainland? They're pretty persistent, those protests. And if, if that sort of persistence uh, spread into China mainland, they'd, they'd have a serious problem on their hands.
1: A major problem. Actually, the major problem. There isn't a larger concern for China than young people protesting in the streets. There's, you know, obviously Tiananmen. But before that, there's a long history of challenges to government that come with student protests in China, reaching far before Tiananmen. What the answer, though, to this is, will this young, will this young generation in mainland China protest? The answer is, is very likely no. There's a substantial cultural divide between young people in Hong Kong and young people in mainland China. And that cultural divide, that identity divide, who am I, what do I stand for, is actually at the crux of this friction.
0: Hmm. Isn't it kind of like an armed truce between the young generation that wants to be free and the older, uh, empowered generation that wants to hold the country together that they need each other?
1: I think it's less that and more of an up-down issue. You know, in China, they don't see politics as left and right. They see it as up and down. They have the wealthy, they have the empowered, and then they have sort of the 99%. Hong Kong has worse inequality, worse economic inequality within Hong Kong than it's had in the last 50 years. And so there's this feeling amongst young people that a promise wasn't kept. The promise that you could own a house that you, or own an apartment within Hong Kong, that your kids can get educated, that you can get a good job if you are educated. And what's happening is unless you're a second generation sort of real estate maven who who made most of the money in Hong Kong or in the finance industry, you feel like that promise has not been kept. Who's to blame for keeping that promise? You look towards the Hong Kong government. Who controls the Hong Kong government? That goes back to Beijing. But this issue of inequality, you know, the average apartment in Hong Kong, the average rent is 125% of the average income. Hmm. There's n- not the sense that they could actually live in the city that they grew up in. And when that happens in the United States, you know, New York gets really expensive, San Francisco gets really expensive. There's pressure valves for that. You move to Austin, you move to Denver. There, there are other cities where you can feel at home in the United States that you can feel American. Hong Kong does not feel that way about mainland China. They do not feel that they could go to Shenzhen across the border, that they can go to Beijing and still have it feel like their home. And so that pressure is building up, and we're seeing it erupt.
0: This is Travel with Rick Steves. We're talking with Zach Dykwald. His book is Young China. Zach operates the Young China Group Consultancy, and its mission is to focus on the younger generation in China and to help Americans understand the needs and expectations of 400 million millennial Chinese. His website is youngchinagroup.com. Our phone number is 877-333-7425 and Mitch is calling from Pittsburgh. Mitch, thanks for your call.
4: Hi, Rick. It's a pleasure to talk to you. So I had the uh, opportunity to visit Hong Kong, actually, and mainland China in late May and June of early 2019. And it was really before the protests started to ramp up and tourism was booming. However, as we know, given, you know, Hong Kong's economy suffering because of the protests and the clashes and mounting pressure from Beijing and, you know, not last but not least, the coronavirus and uh, Hong Kong has suddenly decided to close their borders to foreigners and mainland Chinese. And I just wonder how this is going to impact travel for Westerners who might want to go and visit Hong Kong and not only uh, visit, but also live there and work there. And how millennial Hong Kongers specifically are handling this. Do you think they're going to stay um, or do you think they're going to want to head to other more attractive places in Southeast Asia, such as Singapore, with a little bit more lax immigration rules? And, you know, not the pressure from this big central government.
1: The impact is going to be large and mostly negative. So Hong Kong, to a massive degree, relied on tourism, not just from around the world, but from mainland China itself. Also, it sort of made its name and, and was always the middle ground between East and West, right, between the West and specifically China. Now, with the protests and then, of course, with the coronavirus, the tourism dollars that are going to be heading to Hong Kong, and not just tourism, but the amount of businesses who are going to be willing to base themselves there, you're exactly right, is frankly plummeting. The biggest issue I see with Hong Kong, including with the protests, is that there's nowhere else on earth that people from Hong Kong feel like is home. And so the idea of having to even go to mainland China for them is is a bit of a culture clash, even though they see themselves as ethnically Chinese, certainly, and part of sort of the Chinese diaspora. They grew up, and many of people my age, many of whom, by the way, I went to the University of Hong Kong as an exchange student. I know a lot of people on the the front lines of the protest. They describe this anxiety about not having a home. They can't purchase a place in Hong Kong. They can't afford the rent. And there's nowhere else, including Singapore, including Malaysia, including mainland China, to them that feels like home. And so that friction, I don't exactly see how that pressure finds a way out finds a vent. So that's pretty dire. It feels dire. I have to say what what was happening in Hong Kong to me felt as much like an identity crisis as anything else. I know we covered it as a sort of a, a freedom protest and it was certainly that and I don't want to um, mm-hmm. undermine the efforts of the protesters. But really what you see is a city whose dynamics got so out of sync where the cost of property, the cost of rent, the cost of life there got so out of whack with the average income and with what people could afford that young people were
0: out of options. Mitch, thanks for your call.
4: Thanks so much, Rick. It was a pleasure.
0: Zach Dykwald's our guest on Travel with Rick Steves. He's the founder of the Young China Consultancy in New York, and he's written Young China to highlight the expectations of China's millennial generation. In the news lately has been the coronavirus and the Chinese government's response to it. Do we gain any insights into the Chinese government, uh, its strengths and its weaknesses and so on? by this new crisis
1: we actually do and you know we just we talked about hong kong i've actually seen more strain on the government perception of the government in response to the coronavirus or COVID 19 with the issue of this virus than i've seen really in the last decade and so you see sort of the worst of the government in terms of its wanting to stifle the freedom of speech particularly with the doctor dr lee who was one of several doctors, I think one of eight doctors who discovered the virus early on, was trying to sort of blow the whistle on this virus. And his ability to do that was put down, and he was actually criminalized in that. He later passed away. His passing, once it became known what he tried to do in an attempt to stop the spread early on, you know, the government was between three and four weeks late on actually acknowledging the threat of the coronavirus – It aggravated the country in a way that I have not seen before in the last decade.
0: So the government's not just um, monolithic and uh, impervious to problems from its populace. It has to be responsive to this and they can be held responsible.
1: Absolutely. But but there's also another critical difference in the way we see the government. So we see the government as Beijing, right? We see it as a monolith. China sees the government as local. For decades and decades and decades within China, much of the issues have arisen from local government, in this case, the Wuhan prefecture, not wanting to appear like the bad guy or the weak link to the central government. And so they'll gloss their numbers, they'll cover things up, trying to clean up their own mess before it becomes an issue. This was actually part of the cause of the Great Leap Forward, 1958 through 1961, which ended up in the famine of 45 million people. It was local areas not wanting to accurately represent how much grain they were producing. And so within China, yes, there's a lot of upset with the government. Absolutely, there's a big pushback and frustration and real anger from the people towards the government. But it's not seen as as much a monolith as it is a the inefficiencies of a bureaucracy that have nagged it for decades and decades.:
0: There's more with Zach Dykwald in a minute on our American perceptions of China. We're at 877-333. 7425 on Travel with Rick Steves. Bonjour, je m'appelle Patrick, j'habite en Bretagne, et je voyage avec Rick Steves. That's French for I'm Patrick, from Brittany, in France, and I'm traveling with Rick Steves. I repeat it, bonjour, je m'appelle Patrick, j'habite en Bretagne, et je voyage avec Rick Steves. We're getting an update on what the West should understand about China right now on Travel with Rick Steves. Our guest, Zach Dykwald, has spent much of his adult life in China, and he's the author of Young China. Zach, you make the point in the book, and it is so important that our perception of China is created by the media, uh, the government, the macroeconomics, the people, what we think normal life in China is. Talk about the perception we have of China and then the reality that you see by actually living and working in China.
1: Sure, and and this is a sensitive one because I I don't want to you know I I know there's a lot of talk about big media this or that and in our politics, unfortunately, most of what we're incentivized to write about in our media is the government. And if you were to only judge China by its government, particularly our characterization of its government, it would be difficult not to have negative feelings. Now, similarly, I was in China recently, and I was looking at the news about the United States, and I was reading the headlines about. Our government just from the news. And if you were to only know our government, our country by who's running it or, or not just who's running it, but sort of the uh, the excitement that comes out of Washington, D.C., you would have very different feelings about the United States than if you were to interact with the people. So what I advocate for is instead of looking at just you know, the 24-hour news cycle that jumps from crisis to crisis with not just China, but with the United States as well, and instead of looking at the macroeconomy, which is exciting and bombastic and, you know, can impact your, your health in a negative, positive way if you're following the markets, I would instead try to focus on the human stories that come out of China. For instance, with the coronavirus, we talk a lot about the government role in the quarantining. We don't think about the psychological cost of being quarantined in a small apartment with your parents and your grandparents. Remember when the outbreak began, people were going home for Chinese New Year, sort of like Christmas travel. Everyone goes home from wherever city they're from. There's actually 3 billion one-way train tickets booked for Chinese New Year. You have all these people who are flooding home, excited to be there, one of the biggest travel holidays in the world. And suddenly this virus hits. Wow! And news begins to trickle in. And the doors begin to close. And you can't go back to work. Your only interaction with the outside world, for the most part, is your sort of Facebook feed equivalent through WeChat. And that Fear, layer upon layer, day upon day, compounding by being with your parents. You know, we don't we don't express a lot of empathy for that. And I think that human side of it, you know, if we were to look at China from that human side, particularly with the issue of the virus, that outpouring of empathy and that, that would come naturally from us would allow us to understand China in a far more human way. So I think of it as a people first perspective of China that we often glaze over when we only think about the government and then the numbers that come out every quarter.
0: We're talking with Zach Dykwald. His book is Young China. I'd love your insider's take, just as a as a primer so we can get our brains around this, the trade war between the United States and China in layman's terms. What's the latest with the whole competition we've got and tension we've got with the race for 5G and, and the Huawei issue?
1: The trade war has had a larger impact than many people in China expected. Trump has been harder on trade than many people expected. But much of what he's describing accomplishing is actually things that, frankly, President Obama should have been pushing for. Equal market access, protection of intellectual property. Uh, These are not revolutionary issues. They're issues that China, as it moved from developing to developed, was going to have to confront sooner or later. Hmm. It's happening sooner than they expected.
0: So this is the growing pains of an honest global economic power
1: you know, is, was, was the intellectual property taken? Absolutely. Uh, China is both a developing and a developed country at once. This is sort of the anomaly that is China trying to label it any one of these two things is, isn't quite right. So I actually think the trade war is legitimate. I actually think what President Trump is, is sort of pushing on China, you know, I'm from California and, and went to school in New York. You can guess my politics, but I, I don't think what he's doing there is, mm-hmm. is wrong. I think, though, that it's a bit of a shiny object, if you will, right. a bit of a distraction. And the reason is, is economics important to China? Absolutely. But it's only half the equation. The other half is is geopolitical power. And so when President Trump came to power, China was a pretty fragile, transitioning outside of fragile to a somewhat steadier regional and global power in Asia, right? But it was surrounded by U.S. alliances. What happened with America first and President Trump is a lot of those U.S. alliances particularly with the Trans-Pacific Partnership, basically Japan, South Korea, Taiwan, a lot of trade partners in the area who have relied on the United States, and then trade partners you know in the Asia-Extended Region all the way to Africa who have looked towards the United States, suddenly they were missing that partnership. And China has had the opportunity in that vacuum to go and offer an alternative. And that alternative is allowing China to entrench itself in the Asia-Extended Region and solidify its geopolitical standing even though the short-term economics are going to take a hit with the trade war.
0: This is Travel with Rick Steves. We've been talking with Zach Dykwald. His book is Young China, How the Restless Generation Will Change Their Country and the World. 400 million millennials stepping into power right now in China. Zach, just to cap this discussion, it seems like there's, it's a dance between emerging and development and power and freedom for the people on the streets. What does freedom mean to China today?
1: It's an enormously important question. I've seen the word freedom in Chinese, ziyao, and, and I've seen the English word, literally tattooed on friends' arms, t- written on people's backpacks. I have a friend who has written the word freedom on his ceiling. So it is the first thing he sees every single morning when he wakes up. But different than the freedom we often anticipate, which is freedom from an oppressive and restrictive regime, right? That's the sort of freedom we all imagine. The freedom a lot of young people are looking for is freedom from an oppressive and restrictive set of traditions, the freedom to live the life that they want. Hmm. So in China, there is this saying called the seven great aunts and the eight great uncles. The idea is that they are this chorus of sirens who you're forced to go home to, and they'll pester you with questions like, how is your job? How much are you making? How is your girlfriend or boyfriend? Are you married yet? Do you own property? And it's this incessant droll of these expectations of what a life should be. And so I talked before about this grind of, of expectations around tradition, uh, when you should have kids. For women, it's before the age of 27. If you're not married uh, before the age of 27 and you're a woman in China, you're known, you're, you're called sheng It means a leftover woman deemed socially inedible by society. That's a traditional, or sort of the evolution of a traditional concept. Now, a lot of women obviously are wanting to push up against that, but you have that—you have that pressure that comes from the people around you. For young men, there's this feeling that they have to own property in order to provide a sense of anchungan, a sense of security which is partly why China's property markets are so out of whack. You have a real estate market that's propped up by a marriage market. So you have these young men who end up who want to look after their parents because that's what it means to be traditional in China. You look after your parents and filial piety, but end up having to borrow from their parents just so they can buy property in order to be an eligible bachelor so they can get married and have kids and make their parents happy. So you get these sort of oddities of the pressures of how one ought to live a life. Keep in mind, China's 1.4 billion people. While it's not totally uniform, you do have around 95% of the people who are Han Chinese. So there is more just neighborly pressure aimed in the same direction that ends up stifling a lot of young people.
0: Well, Zach, it seems like the choice you made as a student 10 years ago to recognize that Europe is great, but uh, the action's going to be in China, looks like it's a pretty good decision. And uh, reading your book, Young China, and following uh, your organization, Young China Group gets us up to date on that, certainly. Thanks, Zach, for being with us. Thanks so much for having me, Rick. You can listen to Zach's prior appearance from a link with today's show at ricksteves.com slash radio. I'm Rick Steves. The world will get through this coronavirus pandemic, and we will be traveling again soon, I hope. For now, let's allow ourselves to be inspired to plan future adventures and to celebrate the welcome the world is waiting to offer us. Thanks for joining us today for Travel with Rick Steves. We've got a few extra minutes today to check in with some of our listeners at 877-333-RICK. And Bob's on the line from Fort Worth, Texas. Hey, Bob.
5: Hi, Rick. How are you?
0: I'm doing good. How are you doing?
5: I'm doing great. It's an honor to spend some time on the phone with you.
0: Well, thank you. What are your thoughts lately about travel?
5: Well, we are heading to Europe, and with all the health concerns that are rising, especially what we hear of in Italy... we just wanted to get your feedback, your thoughts on how you would handle this, what suggestions you might have for us in considering it. We just don't know how to approach it.
0: Well, you know, everybody's thinking about the coronavirus and should we do our trip or not. Uh, I just think we don't know what's down the road with this thing. It could be uh, even more of a crisis. So what are we supposed to do? I I really don't know, to be honest. I I would say uh, when you do travel, you want to just be proactive in, in being healthy. You know, coronavirus or no coronavirus, um, sure. You know, hardy uh, people in the prime of their lives are, are not as at risk as as older people and people with uh, impaired immune systems when it comes to that particular virus. Um, for me, the key when I'm traveling, and I'm not fixated on, on the coronavirus, I think that's, it's a scary thing right now, but uh, again, we don't know where it's going to be in a month um but the sure. but what i do know is that you've always got uh the fact that this trip is really important for you and your travel partner and it's a shame to have a uh, cold it's just it seems like such a silly little mundane thing but it it just takes the wind out of your sails and um i think a lot of people get so stressed out by planning and everything before their trip that they leave on the verge of um having a cold and then the flight and the jet lag makes them uh, over the edge and they get that cold and the first week of their trip is they're under the weather So what I do is I put a false departure date on my calendar two days before I'm actually leaving. And then at the expense of being all uptight and really busy, 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 I'm completely ready for my trip 48 hours before I fly. And then I have a restful, settled, beautiful last couple of days at home, and I leave well-rested. And then on the flight, I try to get some sleep. And then when I'm in Europe, for me, sleep is the best medicine, and I hydrate. More important than ever these days is just common sense of... uh, washing your hands and and good hygiene, uh, covering your coughs, and uh, don't be in enclosed places with sick people if you can avoid it. Uh, But for me, that solid sleep is the greatest thing. And as I always say in my lectures and so on, and you may have heard it before, I bring some medicine that helps me sleep because I don't like pharmaceuticals if I don't need them, but uh, a little bit of Ambien, and I get an extra three hours of sleep, I'm so much healthier than if I lose that sleep. So do what you can do, to make sure that you get your seven or eight hours of sleep a night and uh, hydrate, it's very hot over there
5: Well, and to the point about getting sleep and and I, I like the idea of setting your calendar a couple of days ahead of departure right um, that's helpful for us. Do you do anything to adjust your sleep cycle before you go to adjust for jet lag?
0: No, I know people do. You can kind of fast track your recovery of jet lag by going to sleep progressively earlier each night or later. I can't even figure out which it is. But no, it's nine hours (laughs) of an adjustment from the West Coast to Europe for me. And uh, what I do is I take a good solid nap on the plane. And then when you get to Europe, you need to stay awake that first day. And um, jet lag lag just does not like bright light, fresh air, and exercise. So get out, do things outdoors. I just do a walking tour. I just commit myself to being out. And then, you know, if I sat down on a bench and I thought, man, I've had a long day, I must be exhausted, I'd go, yeah, I'm going to just give me a pillow here. But I don't let myself do that. I keep moving. And then I finally get back to the hotel at 10 o'clock, and I'm beat, but I'm going to sleep. But, uh, you know, change your watch to European time so that psychologically you're on European time. Don't keep thinking about what time is it back in the States. And uh, you need to bully yourself right through that jet lag so that you get on European time as soon as possible.
5: Yeah, that sounds good. We we scheduled our flight to land in Strasbourg near 10 in the morning for that very reason. So. That's um, great. We've heard you say that before, so thanks for that guidance. It's, it's, yeah, We'll and see how helpful it is. I'm sure that's going to be very successful for us.
0: And Strasbourg is a beautiful place to get over jet lag. It's got uh, this amazing church. It's got a wonderful sort of uh, everybody's out in the streets, uh, pedestrian ambiance. It's, it's very pedestrian-friendly.
5: Yeah, we're very much looking forward to it. We land on our 25th anniversary, and we figured that's a good place to do it.
0: Ah, that's fantastic. Well, thanks for calling in, Bob, and have a great time.
5: Appreciate it, Rick. Take care.
0: Jerry and Steli are calling in from Dallas in Texas. Hey, Jerry, Steli.
5: All right, we're here. We're a team, Jerry and Steli. We've been traveling together for a long time.
0: Well, great. I guess you're good travel partners then. Oh, yeah.
5: (laughs) The first thing we want
6: to do is thank you so much for the books you have put out because we were travelers in the United States and Canada before we started reading your books. And in 2007, we took our first venture, to Italy with a couple that went for two weeks and we stayed for a month
0: uh-huh. and
6: we realized we could do this. And since then, we have been back to Italy for two months. Sorrento, Orvieto, Ravenna, Venice, mm-hmm. Terre, And then we took our family for our 50th wedding anniversary to uh, Florence. Florence, And yes. our children and grandchildren met us there.
0: Oh, uh, what a great idea for a 50th wedding anniversary.
6: Yes, we had a big apartment, and we had our friends come, and we talked a couple of our friends into what a great, uh, as well as my sister, as, in the fact that they could travel.
0: Well, I think, uh, you know, for me, it's just getting good information, to get your hands on good information and expect it to work, and then expect yourself to travel smart, and you can, and you guys are proof of that.
5: Yeah,
6: Yes, and it was our brother-in-law that called us when, when we were in Edinburgh, as a uh. matter of fact, and, uh, and said, hey, you guys are on Rick Steves. And I asked him, I said, well, was he talking about Italy? And he said, no, actually, he was talking about you're never too old to travel.
3: <laughs> ah. what,
0: what, you, and, you were on Rick Steves, what does that mean, on my TV show?
5: When your well, you were doing pledge drive commercials and you, oh, you, you I, I showed ha- our picture. Yeah,
0: right? I just showed my photographs to make my points and they took one of my talks and made it a show for pledge purposes on public television. Right. And you're the couple that I say you're never too old to travel? That, we're the ones. And you that was on a staircase, I think, uh, in Italy somewhere, maybe... Uh, um, in- in, in Bellagio. Bellagio, that's right. You were waiting for a table. I, yeah. I love that photograph. I know the table, I know the restaurant, I know the steep staircase, and I know the uh, the relief it is to sit down after climbing that staircase on a hot day <laughs> on Lake Como.
6: <laughs> yes, and I told my brother-in-law, oh, I know the picture. You don't forget when Rick Steves takes a picture. Oh. <laughs> and, uh, I said, gee, that was in 2010, and since 2010 we've been to in 2011, 2013, yeah. we went to Spain and Portugal, 2014, we went to Sorrento. Uh, Let's
0: go back to that same place, and we'll get an update 10 years later on Lake Como. <laughs> yes.
6: we, have, we haven't been back there again, but yeah. uh, well, we've been to a lot of great places. Yeah. And, uh, oh,
0: great. You know, wow. Jerry and Steli, I remember when I saw you guys sitting there, I thought... It was like the spirit of me when I was a college vagabond backpack youth hosteler, but in an <laughs> older body, about 40 years older. And oh, ha- yeah. we were
6: young. L- a lot more than that. And and and, and, ha- yeah, right. and,
0: ha- and having enough money to buy a nice glass of wine.
6: Yes, yes and a yes. nice dinner. And having a, rest, the so. common
0: sense to uh, you know, have that good information and to have a good travel partner. And I just thought that's what inspires me to keep teaching is meeting people like you, who, um, people who know that I like to say, you know, it's never too late to have a happy childhood. <laughs> right?
6: Yeah. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Good and yet, you know, the people that we've seen and uh, ask us if we're going to take cruises and. And Jerry's
5: response always is, <laughs> when I can't carry my suitcase up three flights of stairs, then we go. can k- take a cruise.
0: Yeah, well, I like that, because cruises <laughs> are fine for people that like to have a, be able to step right off the boat, but you guys are immersed in Europe, and that makes so much sense. <laughs> yeah. oh,
6: it, it, uh, we spent uh, a month in Paris, yeah. and then uh,
0: in 2016,
6: went to uh, Colmar, Dijon, Bonne, All the way down to Arles and Antibes and flew out of Nice. So it was a total of two months.
0: You know, one one great thing about Europe is you can never exhaust it of what it has to offer. Uh, You just keep going back, and we've been doing this for years now.
6: Yes, and when we went to Italy for the first time, we lived with, never assume you won't be back. And when we went for the first time, we never dreamed we would go back, you Mm -hmm. know. Seven more times. Well, (laughs) if you have a
0: good trip, you'll find a way to do it. Jerry and Steli, it's a delight to talk to you. And now every time I look at that photograph when I give my talks, because it's in my basic slideshow that I give, (laughs) I'll think I know that couple and they are great travelers. Thanks a lot.
5: Okay, one thing I want to tell you. We think we know you too. Yeah. We never did sign a release for that photo.
0: (laughs) Oh, that's right. Well, let your people talk to my people. We'll figure that out, okay?
6: (laughs) Okay. (laughs) Okay, Thank thank, thank you again. Thanks a lot.
0: Happy travels. Okay, okay. Bye. bye-bye.
4: Bye-bye. bye-bye. Bye. Travel with Rick Steves is produced at Rick Steves Europe in Edmonds, Washington, by Tim Tappan, Isaac Kaplan-Wilner, and Casmara Hall. We get website support from America Amerikipnikone, promotion support from Sheila Gerzoff, and our theme music is by Jerry Frank. Thanks to the Radio Foundation in New York for their help this week. There's more at ricksteves.com radio.
2: Rick Steves has spent a third of his adult life in Europe researching and writing guidebooks. Europe Through the Back Door teaches the skills of smart travel. Travel as a political act adds meaning to the journey. And Rick Steves' best-selling country, city, and pocket guidebooks cover every corner of Europe. To learn more, visit the Travel Store at ricksteves.com.